interest in the show, just go to pgttcm.com. Check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shower curtains in there. Keep clean. Look cool. Have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon. Get a free sticker. Or don't. It's up to you. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Ginger Cucolo. A Man with Two Lives by Ambrose Bierce. Here is the queer story of David William Duck, related by himself. Duck is an old man living in Aurora, Illinois, where he is universally respected. He is commonly known, however, as Dead Duck. In the autumn of 1866, I was a private soldier of the 18th Infantry. My company was one of those stationed at Fort Phil Kearney, commanded by Colonel Carrington. The country is more or less familiar with the history of that garrison, particularly with the slaughter by the Sioux of a detachment of 81 men and officers, not one escaping, through disobedience of orders by its commander, the brave but reckless Captain Fetterman. When that occurred, I was trying to make my way with important dispatches to Fort C.F. Smith on the Bighorn. As the country swarmed with hostile Indians, I traveled by night and concealed myself as best I could before daybreak. The better to do so, I went afoot, armed with a Henry rifle and carrying three days' rations in my haversack. For my second place of concealment, I chose what seemed in the darkness a narrow canyon leading through a range of rocky hills. It contained many large boulders detached from the slopes of the hills. Behind one of these, in a clump of sagebrush, I made my bed for the day and soon fell asleep. It seemed as if I had hardly closed my eyes, though in fact it was near midday, when I was wakened by the report of a rifle, the bullet striking the boulder just above my body. A band of Indians had trailed me and had me nearly surrounded. The shot had been fired with an execrable aim by a fellow who had caught sight of me from the hillside above. The smoke of his rifle betrayed him, and I was no sooner on my feet than he was off his and rolling down the declivity. Then I ran in a stooping posture, dodging among the clumps of sagebrush and a storm of bullets from invisible enemies. The rascals did not rise in pursue, which I thought rather queer, for they must have known by my trail that they had to deal with only one man. The reason for their inaction was soon made clear. I had not gone a hundred yards before I reached the limit of my run, the head of the gulch which I had mistaken for a canyon. It terminated in a concave breast of rock, nearly vertical and destitute of vegetation. In that cul-de-sac I was caught like a bear in a pen. Pursuit was needless. They had only to wait. They waited for two days and nights, crouching behind a rock topped with a growth of mesquite, and with the cliff at my back, suffering agonies of thirst and absolutely hopeless of deliverance. I fought the fellows at long range, firing occasionally at the smoke of their rifles, as they did at that of mine. 
Of course, I did not dare to close my eyes at night, and lack of sleep was a keen torture. I remember the morning of the third day, which I knew was to be my last. I remember, rather indistinctly, that in my desperation and delirium, I sprang out into the open and began firing my repeating rifle without seeing anybody to fire at. And I remember no more of that fight. The next thing I recollect was my pulling myself out of a river just at nightfall. I had not a rag of clothing and knew nothing of my whereabouts, but all that night I traveled, cold and footsore, toward the north. At daybreak, I found myself at Fort C.F. Smith, my destination, but without my dispatches. The first man that I met was a sergeant named William Briscoe, whom I knew very well. You can fancy his astonishment at seeing me in that condition, and my own at his asking who the devil I was. Dave Duck, I answered. Who should I be? He stared like an owl. You do look it, he said, and I observed that he drew a little away from me. What's up? he added. I told him what had happened to me the day before. He heard me through, still staring. Then he said, My dear fellow, if you are Dave Duck, I ought to inform you that I buried you two months ago. I was out with a small scouting party and found your body, full of bullet holes and newly scalped. Somewhat mutilated otherwise, too, I am sorry to say. Right where you say you made your fight. Come to my tent, and I'll show you your clothing and some letters that I took from your person. The commandant has your dispatches. He performed that promise. He showed me the clothing which I resolutely put on, the letters which I put into my pocket. He made no objection, then took me to the commandant, who heard my story and coldly ordered Briscoe to take me to the guardhouse. On the way, I said, Bill Briscoe, did you really and truly bury the dead body that you found in these togs? Sure, he answered. Just as I told you, it was Dave Duck, all right. Most of us knew him, and now, you damned impostor, you'd better tell me who you are. I'd give something to know, I'd said. A week later, I escaped from the guardhouse and got out of the country as fast as I could. Twice I have been back, seeking for that fateful spot in the hills, but unable to find it. End of A Man With Two Lives Recording by Ginger Cucolo. This episode is brought to you by Psychedelic Water. Psychedelic Water is mild psychedelics, legal mild psychedelics, suspended in tea and then put into a can and then shipped to you. You can get a shipment of it weekly. Get a subscription to it, have it sent to you. Links in the show notes. Check it out. It is really nice. I like it a little bit more than CBD. Honestly, it really helps my anxiety and helps me chill out. But hey, if for some reason or another you can't get psychedelic water, check out Golden Goat CBD. They got CBD, they got CBD gummies, they've got chewables, they've got droppers, they've got uh, salts for in the bath. I don't want to see bath salts because then people think of like people eating people's faces in Florida. Uh, oh, oh, hey. Something that is awesome. Copper cow pour-over coffee from Vietnam. Vietnamese pour-over coffee. This is so good. I just picked up the churro. It was really good. I normally just love a black coffee. Their black coffee is amazing. And Sarah, my partner, she had the creamer with just the black coffee. And she was like, this is really good. Pour-over coffee. Have you had pour-over coffee? It's so good. It's really, really good. 
And speaking of really, really good, Taza Chocolates has some amazing stuff this winter. Check out their peppermint bark. They have some really good vegan peppermint bark, and you're going, ugh, vegan chocolate. They use almond milk instead of milk milk. It is so good, and I can eat it without getting sick, which is really nice. All right. Check the show notes for sponsors. Find out who sponsors us, who keeps the show going, and you help, help you know, help them out because they help us out. All right. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show, how to support our guests, and thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Recording by Ginger Cucolo. Three and one are one. In the year 1861, Bar Lassiter, a young man of 22, lived with his parents and an elder sister near Carthage, Tennessee. The family were in somewhat humbled circumstances, subsisting by cultivation of a small and not very fertile plantation. Owning no slaves, they were not rated among the best people of their neighborhood, but they were honest persons of good education, fairly well-mannered, and as respectable as any family could be, if uncredentialed by personal dominion over the sons and daughters of Ham. The elder Lester had that severity of manner that so frequently affirms an uncompromising devotion to duty and conceals a warm and affectionate disposition. He was of the iron of which martyrs are made, but in the heart of the matrix had lurked a nobler metal, fusible at a milder heat, yet never coloring nor softening the hard exterior. By both heredity and environment, something of the man's inflexible character had touched the other members of the family. The Lassiter home, not devoid of domestic affection, was a veritable citadel of duty and duty. Ah, duty is as cruel as death. When the war came on, it found in the family, as in so many others in that state, a divided sentiment. The young man was loyal to the Union, the other savagely hostile. This unhappy division begot an insupportable domestic bitterness, and when the offending son and brother left home with the avowed purpose of joining the Federal Army, not a hand was laid in his, not a word of farewell was spoken, not a good wish followed him out into the world whither he went to meet with such spirit as he might whatever fate awaited him. Making his way to Nashville, already occupied by the army of General Buell, he enlisted in the first organization that he found, a Kentucky regiment of cavalry, and in due time passed through all the stages of military evolution from raw recruit to experienced trooper. A right good trooper he was, too, although in his oral narrative from which this tale is made, there was no mention of that. The fact was learned from his surviving comrades, for Bar Lassiter has answered here to the sergeant whose name is Death. 
Two years after he joined it, his regiment passed through the region whence he had come. The country thereabout had suffered severely from the ravages of war, having been occupied alternately and simultaneously by the belligerent forces, and a sanguinary struggle had occurred in the immediate vicinity of the Lassiter homestead. But of this the young trooper was not aware. Finding himself in camp near his home, he felt a natural longing to see his parents and sister, hoping that in them, as in him, the unnatural animosities of the period had been softened by time and separation. Obtaining a leave of absence, he set foot in the late summer afternoon, and soon after the rising of the full moon was walking up the gravel path leading to the dwelling in which he had been born. Soldiers in war age rapidly, and in youth two years are a long time. Bar Lester felt himself an old man, and had almost expected to find the place a ruin and a desolation. Nothing, apparently, was changed. At the sight of each dear and familiar object, he was profoundly affected. His heart beat audibly, his emotion nearly suffocated him, an ache was in his throat. Unconsciously, he quickened his pace until he almost ran, his long shadow making grotesque efforts to keep its place beside him. The house was unlighted, the door open. As he approached and paused to recover control of himself, his father came out and stood bareheaded in the moonlight. "'Father!' cried the young man, springing forward with outstretched hand. "'Father!' The elder man looked him sternly in the face, stood a moment motionless, and without a word withdrew into the house. Bitterly disappointed, humiliated, inexpressibly hurt, and altogether unnerved, the soldier dropped upon a rustic seat in deep dejection, supporting his head upon his trembling hand. But he would not have it so. He was too good a soldier to accept repulse as defeat. He rose and entered the house, passing directly to the sitting-room. It was dimly lighted by an uncurtained east window. On a low stool by the hearthside, the only article of furniture in the place, sat his mother, staring into a fireplace strewn with blackened embers and cold ashes. He spoke to her, tenderly, interrogatively, and with hesitation, but she neither answered, nor moved, nor seemed in any way surprised. True, there had been time for her husband to apprise her of their guilty son's return. He moved nearer, and was about to lay his hand upon her arm, when his sister entered from an adjoining room, looked him full in the face, passed him without a sign of recognition, and left the room by a door that was partly behind him. He had turned his head to watch her, but when she was gone, his eyes again sought his mother. She, too, had left the place. Bar Lassiter strode to the door by which he had entered. The moonlight on the lawn was tremulous, as if the sward were a rippling sea. The trees in their black shadows shook as in a breeze. Blended with its borders, the gravel walk seemed unsteady and insecure to step on. This young soldier knew the optical illusions produced by tears. He felt them on his cheek and saw them sparkle on the breast of his trooper's jacket. He left the house and made his way back to camp. The next day, with no very definite intention, with no dominant feeling that he could rightly have named, he again sought the spot. Within a half mile of it, he met Bushrod Albro, a former playfellow and schoolmate, who greeted him warmly. I am going to visit my home said the soldier. The other looked at him rather sharply, but said nothing. I know, continued Lassiter, that my folks have not changed, but... There have been changes, Albro interrupted. Everything changes. I'll go with you if you don't mind. We can talk as we go. 
but Albro did not talk. Instead of a house, they found only fire-blackened foundations of stone, enclosing an area of compact ashes pitted by rains. Lassiter's astonishment was extreme. I could not find the right way to tell you, said Albro. In the fight a year ago, your house was burned by a federal shell. And my family, where are they? In heaven, I hope. All were killed by the shell. End of three and one are one. Recording by Ginger Kukolo.